people have brought in over the last couple months. And um, if you pull up the other slideshow, Dale, we're going to be talking about hell today. Because we've had people ask about hell. We've had people ask, is hell real? What is, what are all these terms in the Bible? Hades, Sheol, Gehenna, the lake of fire. What, are they all the same thing? What are they? We've had people ask, uh, who goes to hell? What happens after I die? And why hell? George Barna did a survey in 2005, very exhaustive survey of the United States population, and he discovered that 71% or more of Americans believe in a literal hell. But only half of 1% believe they will go there or deserve to go there. Half of 1%. Fifteen percent believe that you go to you only go to heaven if you're a good person. Six percent believe that God doesn't send anyone to hell because God is good and would never do anything like that. Among Christians, fifty percent who say that they believe in Jesus believe that they'll go to heaven because they're good people and do good things. 50%. And ha in fact, half of the people who call themselves atheists believe in heaven and hell, life after death, and that they have souls. Half of the people who call themselves atheists. Would you say that Americans are rather conflicted? Isn't that crazy? So three-quarters of the country believes in a literal heaven and a literal hell. But only half a percent Wow. A number of years ago, about 2011, there was a pastor named Rob Bell who uh, wrote a book called Love Wins. And in the book, Bob, Rob Bell basically said that he didn't believe in a literal hell, didn't believe um, that Christian or that people were going to be sent to hell by God. It caused a firestorm in the Christian community because Rob Bell was a very popular speaker, did a lot of DVD series that people loved. In fact, I watched many of them and really enjoyed them. When he came out with this book, um, it was just like, it was a huge firestorm about this whole thing, big controversy. But it really stirred people up to want to get answers about hell. Why hell? What is it? Who goes there? What will happen to me? So this morning I'm going to be looking at some questions that people are asking, including people here in our congregation. So I've interspersed a few cartoons from Gary Larson to kind of make it a little less somber and uh, introduce a little bit of humor in the middle of it. So I hope you enjoy those. These are questions that I have also asked. How many of you have asked questions about about the concept of hell. Anybody? Yeah, good. I think that's pretty natural for us. Rather than 
selling you on what I believe about it. I'm going to let the scriptures pretty much speak for themselves. Because I want you to make up your own mind, not to just believe something that is you're told, okay? I want you to wrestle with it like I've been wrestling with it and decide what you believe yourself, okay? Um, first of all, I want to talk about this idea. Someone asked the question about these various terms, what they call the topography of hell. So if you look on the slide, go ahead. Um, keep going. First one I want to talk about is this term, the abyss, which is also the same as the as a, as a, as a word called Tartarus, which is the original language. Uh, the word is also translated the pit in many verses, and um, the abyss is not a place for people, okay? And by the way, if you guys have your handout sheet this morning, you can fill in the blank. Not everything that I talk about is going to be on there, but a lot of it will. So it's a good way to get your questions answered. Um, the abyss is a place, it's a holding place. It's basically a prison for fallen angels. Okay? In the book of Genesis, we read in chapter 6 that they were angels that came down and cohabited with human women and produced a bizarre race called the Nephilim. Nephilim in the Hebrew means fallen ones. So it was a mixed race. It's kind of a, sound like the substance of science fiction. We know earlier from the book of Ezekiel, chapter 28 and Isaiah chapter 14, that there was a war in heaven in which Satan and one-third of the angels rebelled against God and were thrown out. Okay? And apparently, some of those angels came down to earth and during the days of Noah had relationships with female human women. And it says in 2 Peter 2 4 that God put those, cast those angels into the abyss, chained them in chains in darkness. That's where they are right now, okay? That's what the abyss is. It's a holding place for angels that are fallen, and uh, those angels, some of them are going to be let out in Revelation chapters 9, 11, and 20. The beast comes out of the pit, and um, as well as the, the dragon is chained there for a thousand years, then released for a last final event at the end of the book of Revelation from the, the abyss. So that's the abyss, also called the pit, also called Tartarus, okay? Go to the next one, Dale. The next thing I want to talk about is what in the Old Testament is called Sheol, and in the New Testament is called Hades, okay? Hades and hell are often interchanged. This is what is a place for dead human beings to go, okay? When people die... Up until the time of Jesus, everybody went to Hades. Jesus explains in Luke chapter 16 that up until his resurrection, Hades was a place that was divided into two by a big chasm or gulf uh, channel, like a big canyon. 
On one side was a place of torment where the unrighteous dead went. On the other side, though, was a place of rest and comfort called Abraham's bosom. Okay, that was the term for it, Abraham's bosom. Jesus talks about this in Luke 16. Now you see the picture here. This is a very old picture. The story of Lazarus and the rich man. Lazarus was a beggar, but apparently a righteous beggar. You can sit there, David. A righteous beggar who was living at the gates of a very self-indulgent rich man who just tossed him scraps once in a while. This poor beggar was there suffering greatly. And uh, at a certain point, the beggar dies and goes to Abraham's bosom, the comfort and rest side of Hades. Then the rich man died, and he went to the other side of Hades, where, torm where he was in torment and flame. And Jesus tells this story using names. So it indicates it's not a story, but it was a true happening. And he says that the rich man cried out to Abraham, said, can you please allow Lazarus to bring some water to me, to put some water in my tongue to help quench my thirst and the torment that I'm in. And, and Abraham basically says, nope, nobody from that side can cross over to this side. It's, there's a big chasm there. And then he says, then the rich man, and you understand, these people are fully conscious. They're not in their physical body, but they look like bodies. I mean, they look like people still. And they are experiencing pain and so on, fire. And the rich man says, who's no longer rich, obviously, he says, well, please send somebody to tell my brothers, my family, what's going to happen if they don't change. And what does Jesus say? I mean, what does Abraham say? guesses? He says they've got the Bible, basically. He says they have Moses and the prophets. All they got to do is read Moses and the prophets, and they'll know what's going to happen. And he says, well, that's not good enough. If somebody from here, from the dead, rises from the dead and tells them, they'll believe him. He rose from the dead and told us what was going to happen. Jesus did. But Abraham basically says, hey, if they didn't listen to Moses and the prophets, are they going to listen if somebody raises from the dead? And the obvious answer is probably not. Okay, go to the next slide. Oh, I forgot to mention one thing. Let's leave it on this slide. When Jesus died on the cross, we know that there were three days that he was in the tomb, right? His body was in the tomb. Jesus wasn't in his body at that point. He went down to this place, Hades. And it, we we're told in the scripture that he preached to the people who were disobedient in the days of Noah and that he led a host of captives to freedom. This is in Ephesians chapter 4. And so Jesus went down and preached to all these people that were in Hades during the time of Noah. Now, we're not 
sure, but I mean, obviously they had to be on the torment side. So they got a chance to hear the gospel and be freed. And when Jesus was resurrected, he, he took basically emptied out half of the, I mean, a good chunk of the bad side of all those people from Noah's age, plus all the righteous saints that were in Abraham's bosom was emptied, and they all went directly into the presence of God that we call heaven. Okay? So now if a righteous person who is a Christian dies, they don't go to Hades, they go directly into the presence of God. We'll do some scripture on that in a minute. Time's kind of flying and beat my pants here. Okay, next slide. This one. Lake, go back. Whoops. Sorry, Dale. The lake of fire, also called Gehenna. Okay? The lake of fire is the ultimate, it's not being used yet, it's the ultimate destination. It was created for the devil and his angels. Luke 25, 41. Created for the devil and his angels. The lake of fire is eternal punishment for the devil and his angels. But in addition, it will be the destination for those who reject Jesus Christ. Okay, we'll look at the scripture for that in a minute. Kind of giving you a thumbnail on this. All right, go to the last one. The term hell is an umbrella term used throughout various translations to refer to all these three places. You had a question. Luke 16. Okay. That's a really good passage to, to really read carefully. Okay, so we've covered kind of the topography of hell. Okay, Hades is the temporary place of the dead. The abyss is a prison for fallen angels, real people. The lake of fire is the final destination for all who reject God. Okay, now we're going to look at some questions. Six questions. What happens when I die, or we die? First one, what judgment awaits non-Christians at the end of this life? What does Scripture teach about hell? Page out of order. What are some of the major objections to the idea or the doctrine or teaching of hell? Do people who have never heard about Jesus go to hell? And you know that's a good question. And last of all, am I going to hell? Okay? You ready? If you have questions, raise your hand. We'll, we'll stop. And if we don't get through it all, we'll finish it up. Logan, did I answer your question? That is a really good question, Logan. There are a lot of kind of like interactions. First of all, not only is our Hades, is Hades a physical location? We read in the scripture in two or three places that Hades and death are both demonic personalities. In the Greek mythology, Hades was a person also. Death was also a person. Okay, thank you.
basically said what the saints were doing. Also, a lot of Greek mythology uh, is this interrelation. We have to sit down and go through it together. Okay, I talk about it in depth. But um, uh, the Greeks had some similarities in this. Well, let's look at these questions this morning. What happens when we die? First of all, God created humans as thinking, feeling, moral persons, right? Made up of spirit and body, tightly joined together. Death is not normal. When Adam and Eve were created, there was no physical death, okay? Death is not a natural state. Ecclesiastes actually talks about that. It's an enemy. We're told death is the last enemy in 1 Corinthians 15. Death is the consequence of sinning against God. Death is the tearing apart of these two intertwined parts, our soul and our body, when they are separated, which is the, really the basic core def definition of the word death, separation. When they are separated, that's a tearing apart. It's the end of a relationship with our loved ones because physically we are no longer here. And it's the cessation of our life on earth. Okay, So when we die, our spirit soul leaves our body, and our bodies begins to decay. That's why they put it in a grave. Pardon? Consequence of sin. Okay? The body goes to the grave, and the spirit goes into an afterlife to face judgment. Okay? Hebrews 10.27 says, It's given unto men, or hum humans, once to die, then judgment. Okay? We do not believe, the Bible does not teach karma and reincarnation. Now, it's related to karma. It teaches that what we reap, what we sow, we will reap. So there's a little bit of similarity there. But it does not teach that we'll keep going around and getting a different body each time or getting it reincarnating into a, like a cow or a fly or a rat or something. It's not in the scripture. That's made up by the Hindus. The Bible's clear that one day there will be a bodily resurrection for everyone. And I had not been really clear on this. I had thought, well, the righteous are resurrected. I wasn't sure what happened to the unrighteous. Then I was directed to uh, John 5, 28-29, which Jesus, we'll read that in just a minute, but um, it basically everyone will be resurrected to stand before God and the final judgment, okay? Either to eternal life or to be resurrected to eternal condemnation, depending on how we live in relation to God. Christianity differs from every other religion and that our eternal status is not based on how good we were, but it's based on our relationship to Jesus, whether we trusted him with our lives, asked him to be our sacrifice for our sin, our personal sin. That's why that 50% figure that believe they're going to go to heaven because they were good people and did good things is a lie. 
okay? We are saved by grace through faith. Ephesians 2, verse 8 tells us. I'm going to mess with your head in just a minute, so just hold on. We really believe that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whoever believes in him or trusts in him should not perish but have eternal life. That's found where? John 3.16. Anybody who went to Sunday school has got that one down. And it may not be politically correct, but our lives are shaped by the reality that whoever believes in the Son, this is John 3.36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains or abides on him. John 3.36. So upon death, a believer's spirit immediately goes to heaven to be with Jesus. And uh, that's 2 Corinthians 5, I think. I'll give you that verse in a minute when I come down to it, because we're going to read it a little bit later. We just talked about Lazarus in Luke 16, Lazarus and the rich man. Jesus, who has come back from death and is now an expert on what awaits us after the grave, was very, very clear that there, there is a day of judgment coming where everyone will rise from their graves and stand before him for eternal sentencing to either worship in his kingdom or suffer in hell. John 5, 28, 29. At the final judgment, all of us, including you and me, will stand before Jesus. Because Jesus' followers, whose names are written in the book of life, will be with him forever. Okay? Hopefully that's everybody in this room. The Bible couldn't be clearer, though, when it says in Revelation 20, verse 15, if anyone's name is not found written in the book of life, he will end up in the lake of fire. Tough question. Okay, any questions so far? Yes, John. Obedience in trusting in Christ or disobedience in rejecting Christ. Okay? I'm glad you brought that up. I might as well talk about it now. We're told in a number of places that we are, our eternal judgment is based on our deeds, but it's not speaking of our works in the sense of doing good things. It's talking about the deed they're talking about is the deed of trusting Christ. Jesus said, How does a man work the works of God? Asked that question. I think it's in uh, I think it's in John like twelve. And Jesus' response when they when they ask him, "How can we work the works of God?" He says, "Is to believe in God's Son. Okay, to trust in Him." How many of you guys are aware that it, you could do all the great, wonderful things in the world, but because you already have a history of sin, you're already disqualified because you're a sinner. We are all unrighteous. Paul tells us that no one is righteous, not one. We've already, we've already got a hole in the ground so deep from just our childhood 
living in rebellion, the way we've treated one another, the way we have been unfaithful in so many little ways, the words we have used to hurt people. You name it, we could just think of lists. All you do is listen to a modern novel today on, the, on, a, on your phone or whatever, and you just hear divorce and unfaithfulness and affairs and jealousies and murders and torments and people strangling one another. And just endless. We all start at a deficit. James tells us that if we even sin once, we're still sinners. We only sinned once. But God in His grace and mercy says, I want you saved. I want to I save you. I want you to... I want to be in relationship with you. I want to fellowship with you. And so Jesus went, the perfect sinless Lamb of God, went and became our substitute. He died for our sins so we wouldn't have to die for them. He took God's wrath on, on himself so we would not feel God's wrath, experience God's wrath. He died so we could be eternally with the Lord. Yes, Rick. James is saying, particularly in chapter 2, is that if you sincerely trust Jesus to be your Savior, and you've repented for your life, which means you have abhorred your own sin and turned away from it and turned toward Jesus and accept the gift of His righteousness, it says that, that your life's going to look different. You're going to make different choices. It's not going to be perfect, but you're going to progressively become Christ-like as you walk with the Lord. And on the converse side, it says, if somebody says, I'm a believer, but hates his brother, First John goes into this in First John in great detail, hates his brother, it says, well, how can the life of God be in him? He is either lying, and he never was saved in the first point, or he's turned away from Christ, rejected the Christ that he supposedly received. Okay? So when we see a believer, quote, believer, living in a lifestyle that is sinful, it is telling us that they really aren't believing or they're very immature and they're just learning how to walk with the Lord. That's why we're told to give grace to one another because if we all held everybody to a standard of perfection, it wouldn't fly real good, right? Jesus has mercy. When we are weak, he has mercy, but when we are blatantly living in sin. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 lists an illustration of this where a Christian is sleeping, living in a relationship with his stepmother, apparently separated from his father. He's having sexual relations with his stepmother. Paul says, get him out of your church. Get him out of your church and hope that he comes to a place of repentance for that. In this case, the guy did. He repented after he was disciplined and removed from the church and he came back to the Lord, and he was restored to the church in a relationship. It's mentioned in 1 Corinthians 5 and 2 Corinthians chapter 7. So good question, Brooke. Good question. Anybody else have a question on this? Am I being clear enough? So I know I'm giving you a lot of stuff without a whole lot of verses to back it up, and you can ask me later, and I'll try to help you with that if you have questions about that. The second question today. What judgment awaits non-Christians at the end of this life? Non-Christians. 
day is coming when God will judge the living and the dead through his son, Jesus. Jesus tells us that. When the Son of Man comes to sit on his throne, all will stand before him. This is Matthew chapter 25. From the beginning of creation, the Bible makes it clear that the basis of God's judgment is our deeds, but not our works, but believing and obeying the gospel, which is the news that Jesus came to save us, putting our trust and hope in him. Jesus made this very clear in John 3.36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Jesus' death propitiated, and the word means absorbed, God's wrath against sin. Those who refuse this gift have a double penalty in that they still have to pay for their own sins, and secondly, that they've rejected the gift God gave for their sin, which is Jesus. In John 3.18, Jesus said, Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Now, some of his things we've done. Unlike Jesus' words to the sheep, which he, the sheep is a metaphor for those who believed and trusted in him. He says, you know, to the sheep, enter into, your, into the kingdom. But to the, what are called the goats, the ones that have rejected him, he says, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. In other words, it wasn't prepared for you, but because you rejected God's provision of salvation for you, that's the only alternative that's left for you to get what you wanted, which is you didn't want God, so you're going you're gonna to get an eternity without God. Is that clear? Does that make sense? It's not much fun, but it's true. But this does not mean, this is interesting here, you got to listen to this. It doesn't mean that the relatively nice sinner suffers equally with, the, with Satan or like Adolf Hitler a very committed sinner. There are degrees of punishment in hell, just like there's degrees of reward in heaven. You ever heard that before? There are degrees of punishment in hell. Not everyone in hell suffers to the same degree. Where do we see this? In Luke chapter 12, verses 47 and 48. We read that there are some, like it says, the servant who didn't realize his master was returning and was still not being faithful. He was beating the female, or beating the slaves and not taking care of them. It says that the one who is ignorant is going to be beaten with fewer stripes, which I think is a description of a less horrible hell. It says the one that knew better and did it anyway will be beaten with many stripes, which I believe is code for going to suffer a lot more. If you want the scriptures about different levels of reward in heaven, we'll have to talk a different time. Maybe I can do a different message on that because that's there's a lot to back that up. Okay. Okay. So have you heard this concept before of there being levels of punishment in hell depending on how bad those who are there live their lives? There, I know, it's 
kind of a shock the first time I realized the truth. Okay, third, what does Scripture teach about hell? And I'm not going to be exhaustive here because we'd be here for three weeks if we did that. Jesus talks about hell more than anyone else in the whole Bible. Did you know that? In fact, Jesus talked about hell more than any other topic, hell and eternal reward, in the Bible. Isn't that shocking? Jesus' words come in the context with the rest of Scripture, which says God desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth, 1 Timothy 4. Furthermore, he is, quote, impatient, patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. That's in 2 Peter. Despite God's love for and patience with sinners, it's a horrid mistake to dismiss the Bible's clear teachings on hell. Jesus did not teach on hell because he was excited about people going there. He taught on hell because he wanted people to make a better choice turn from their selfish and wicked ways and to God's salvation. Remember it says in, first, in John 3.17, Christ did not come into the world to condemn the world, that, that through him the world would be saved. That is always God's heart. The Bible says very clearly that God is love and that God is good. But he's like a father who is loving and kind and good or a mama bear, right? Somebody attacks his children, that good loving father is going to move in protection, move in justice, move in dealing with the situation. Reinhold Niebuhr, a famous um, Christian philosopher, said that this ongoing attempt of liberal Christians to deny the concept of hell is basically setting us up to believe in a God without wrath who brings men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. Basically takes the guts out of the gospel. I said a moment ago, Jesus said more about hell than about any other topic. 13% of his sayings are about hell and judgment. More than half of his parables relate to eternal judgment and sin. The Bible does not give us a detailed exposition of hell itself, but it basically des describes many of uh, uh, the aspects of hell, which include, there's seven of them here, you can fill them in if you fill in your, your uh, sheet there. Fire, darkness, punishment, exclusion from God's presence, restlessness, second death, and weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is, a, I think, an ultimate metaphor for incredible frustration and uh, regret. This is really important. Satan will not reign in hell. Satan does not live in hell. Where does Satan live? He lives on earth. 
there's no devil in hell. In spite of Gary Larson's cartoon, there's no devil in hell. Would you put the one up there where it says, welcome to the first day of the rest of your life? It's just not true. It's a myth. Okay? Who's in charge of hell? Jesus is. Okay? Again, hell is a place prepared for, or the lake of fire prepared for the devil and his angels. It's where the beast and the false prophet and those who worship him will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. He will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. The smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest day or night. Revelation 14, verse 10. At the end of the age, the devil will be thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet are, or were. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Revelation 20, verse 10. Hell will be ruled by Jesus, and human and demon alike, including Satan, will be tormented there continually. He's referring to the lake of fire, the final destination. I'm going to skip down a little bit, um, talk about Gehenna, which is the other term for the lake of fire a little bit. Gehenna is literally the valley of Hinnom, H-I-N-N-O-M. It's a place on the south end of the city of Jerusalem. It's a garbage dump now. And it was, it was a place in the Old Testament where the Canaanites sacrificed their children to false gods, to demons. And it was such a place of horror that when they destroyed the idols, they, they, um, they, they cast all the remnants of those idols that they broke up and threw them down there. It was a place that became a, a place of refuge where there was fires burning, all the time garbage was being burned there, there was maggots, all kinds of horrible things. And it was a continuous reminder to the people who lived in the neighborhood there of what hell was going to be like. And so it became a term, not only is the Valley of Hinnom, the south end of the city of Jerusalem, where that huge area was. In fact, it's got a sign today, apparently, that somebody thought it was funny, put up, Welcome to Hell up there for tourists to come and see. But um, it's basically also a true and real place spiritually that at some day is going to become visible at the end, at the, at the, after judgment. As it is, it will be actually the, the lake of fire. We don't know if it's physically be there or not. Maybe it's in a different dimension. It's not clear on that. Okay. Number four, what are some of the major objections to the doctrine of hell? First of all, a loving God would not send billions of people to a horrible hell. In a very important sense, God doesn't send, keep anyone to hell. This is really important that you get this. The only ones that end up in hell are those who have rejected God's revelation of, sal of their salvation who have chosen to suppress and push down and refuse to look at the truth that God has made plain to them. God made people in his image after his likeness with the power to say no and to reject the revelation of himself. 
Subsequently, sinners have no one to blame but themselves, and they end up being damned. To get to hell, somebody must reject the God who shows them his goodness. And out of love for all, quote, gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. That's in Acts 17, I think. So secondly, they, they will also must reject the Spirit, not just God the Father, but the Spirit who, quote, convicts the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. And that's in John chapter 15. And thirdly, they also have to reject the Son, the crucified Son, who said, Jesus said to us, when I'm lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. Obviously, God has been very, tried very hard to save his fine race. People who reject Jesus in this life wouldn't enjoy him in eternal life anyway. You know what, if they, if they really want to get away from God, God will allow that. God will let them choose that eternity. Hell is only for those who persistently reject the real God in favor of false gods. So in the end, people get to be with the God they love. Have you ever met anybody that just loved money? Everything they, they wanted revolved around having more money. Those kind of people that make money their God will end up, that will be all they'll have. They'll get what they choose. C.S. Lewis said, there's two kinds of people. Those who say, thy will be done. And the other ones who God says to them, your will be done. Either we say to God, thy will be done in my life. Or God says to them, will be done. Get what you choose. God is not only loving, but he is just. Heaven and hell are the result of his love and his justice. The third major objection is a loving God would be more tolerant. People who judge God's heart need to really consider if they would be more pleased if God were really more tolerant of everyone including rapists, pimps, pedophiles, and really kind of a crazy idea. The idea of tolerance when we deal with our politically correct society has just gone way overboard. Not everybody in hell is a rapist, of course, but there's still people that have chosen an eternity without Christ. A loving God protects his children from sin and evil by separating them from him. This way, God is a father who is tolerant of all who obey him and are safe for his children, but he's intolerant of those who sin against him and do evil to his children. Subsequently, God is intolerant, like we are, of people who drink and drive, steal, rape, murder. To call God's actions shameful because he's tolerant, not tolerant of those people, he's crazy. They would basically say you need to support the devil. That's the devil's work. Thirdly, hell, God, some people say that hell is a mean, mean concept. God is mean. That's what this idea of hell is. 
understand what love is, look at what Jesus did at the cross. He suffered and he died for the ungodly, the sinners, for his enemies. Or to say it another way, Jesus suffered and died for mean people. So, I don't know about you, but a God, I think a God who would suffer and die for mean people is not very mean. In fact, he's very, very loving. He wants to save everyone. He's not going to force everyone to trust him. Fourth, there are people that object and say that eternal torment of hell is an unjust punishment for people who sin for you know, 60, 70 years of their life. Some actually argue that, that um, the punishment of people and sinners is annihilation. Annihilation means basically that they'll simply cease to exist at some point. The Bible doesn't teach that. It teaches that we are all eternal beings, whether we're righteous or unrighteous. And so suffering, because we are eternally eternal people for the unrighteous, means they will suffer eternally because we never cease to exist. We created in God's image, and we were created to be eternal. Crazy, isn't it? So this idea of annihilationism is not biblical. Daniel 12.2 says that and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And Jesus also says the same thing. He says to the sheep, they're going to go away to righteousness, to eternal life, and the goats to eternal and this idea, um, we're going to talk about this in a second, of um, ultimate reconciliation is not true either. Um, I'm going to go ahead and skip to that. Ultimate reconciliation is the idea that, um, or universal reconciliation, was pr proposed by a, a, an ancient church father named Oregon, Origen. And he believed that after a certain amount of suffering, the unrighteous would come out of the lake of fire on the other side and they would have got everything cleaned out and they would be purified. So they would end up saved eventually. But there's just no support in the Bible for that. From Hebrews 9.27, it says, It's appointed for once, once for a man to die, and after that comes judgment. Jesus, as well as any other Christian, saves us eternally, forever. The Greek word, Ionos means from age to age to age to age to age to age forever. Um, fifth question. We're going to wrap this up. I'm going to make it through today. See you through the next lesson. Number five. Do people who have never heard about Jesus go to hell? And this is really important. Jesus said no one comes to the Father except through me. Peter preached, there is no other name under heaven given among which by which men can be saved except my name. It's in the name of Jesus. The conclusion is simple. There's only one way to God. That's through Jesus. The cool thing is that there are many ways to get to Jesus. That's the exciting part. Sure, we think people getting saved after hearing a message and an altar call giving their life to Christ, but you know there are a lot of people 
to get saved because they have a vision like Cornelius did in Acts chapter 10. There's an Iranian village that I've read about in a very remote part of Iran where every person in the village had the same dream that night about Jesus being the Savior. And they all went to the well in the morning to get water and found out they'd all had the same dream. Every family in the village, the whole village, became Christian. Eventually, missionaries reached that village and discovered they were all worshiping Jesus. Gave them the Bible. Gave them Bibles. God gave Pharaoh and Nebuchadnezzar dreams. God called Abraham directly. In lots of ways, people have come to know the Lord. And um, it's really easy to get saved because we're told in the Bible that anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You don't have to have the language down perfectly. You don't have to have the philosophy down perfectly like the thief on the cross who said Jesus remember me what did Jesus say to him today you'll be with me in paradise God wants to save people he's not looking to keep people out Romans chapter 1 Paul tells us that creation itself tells us very clearly that God exists. The, the, the design we see in humans and nature is a message, it's a sermon being preached to everyone all the time, saying God exists, saying that God can be sought, He can be known. Paul says in Romans 1.20 that ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and the sky through everything God made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power, his divine nature. So they have no excuse for not knowing God. Rather, he tells us, they suppress, they push down the truth. So therefore, while there's no salvation apart from faith in Christ, there's also no reason to overlook the creativity of God to reach people, to get the gospel out. Our Revelation classes are talking about the fact that even after the Christians are taken to heaven, what we call the rapture, and then we go into the seven-year period on the earth of horrible judgment against those who rebelled against God, we still see God making incredible efforts to save people through the 144,000 witnesses who go out and preach the gospel, through an angel that goes across the world preaching the good news, as well as um, two witnesses that preach for three years, in the middle of the, uh, the middle of Jerusalem, apparently on live TV, because the whole world is able to hear, we're told. God is doing everything He can to reach anyone whose heart will respond to Him. Last question: Am I going to hell? What's the closing verse of the Bible say? Uses the word. Jesus says, come. He doesn't want anybody to end up there. It's an invitation for everyone to receive God's saving gift of grace. I wrote up on here on the screen, um, you can make your eternal destination secure today 
by surrendering your life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ if you haven't done so. I love what John wrote in 1 John 5. These things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know or be certain that you have eternal life. And that's the most important to believe in the name of the Son of God. We can know for sure we're saved and going to heaven. God's heart is that we would have peace. We would have assurance of where we're going to be if anything should happen to us. And today, if, if, if anybody is here that has not surrendered to Jesus, I encourage you to come up here to the altar in just a moment as we close and, and make take care of that. You don't want to go out because you might get hit by a bus driving down Box View and be all over when you stand before God without having Jesus. Who wants to stand before God without having Jesus as your advocate? <laughs> Not me. So if anybody is here that doesn't know the Lord, today is the day to take care of that. I'd be glad to pray with you. We'll have a group of people, three, probably three or four people up here to pray with you if that is your desire today. Confess your sins and ask God to forgive you. Receive the gift of life as your son. All right, I got through. Look at that. It's only three minutes after. You guys have any questions? Did it help? Well, you guys got you got more clarity of what hell is all about. Does God want people to go to hell? No. Is hell a real place? Yeah, it is. It's a place we do not want to go. We don't want our loved ones to go. So I hope that you can use the, the material and the verses that we gave you today as well as the other things in the in your handout. If you have loved ones who don't know the Lord and they're currently going that direction because they're without Christ in this world. How many people have loved ones that don't know the Lord? Anybody? I do. Yeah, okay. Why don't we stand together and pray and ask God to help us communicate the truth with those who don't know the Lord. Lord God, we just come to you this morning. It's been a very uh, sobering subject to talk about. We're so glad you're a good, good daddy. Lord, those who choose to become your enemy, they have no idea who they're going to turn to. They have no idea the stakes that are involved and the eternal ramifications of the choices they're making. And Lord, we know that you have mercy. We know that the enemy lies to people. We also know, Lord, that you will not force people to choose you. Father, we lift up our loved ones to you. God, who don't know you, those that we love, those that family, friends, co-workers that don't know you and that are moving into a Christless eternity. God, we cry out that you would show us how to be light to them, how to be able to share good news, how to share our story with them. Lord, we pray that you in your mercy would open their eyes to see where they're going and what their life really looks like. Father, I pray for those believers, or not believers, but those who think they're believers and think they're going to go to heaven because of their good works, because they're basically good people. This is a huge lie because, Lord, if we really are honest with ourselves, look at our lifestyle and our behavior and our choices and actions, we have to say, Lord, I'm a sinner. And if not for the mercy of God, Father, I pray you'd help us to be honest with ourselves, but also love 
our, love the people in our lives enough to tell them the truth. The word says to do it with gentleness and humility, not with pride. Help us, Lord, to pray that our loved ones now who really, truly choose for you, they would really choose what is going to be godly. So God, thank you for your word this morning. I ask you bless this family as we go. Bless you. Anybody who desires to be prayed for, come on up.